O Lord, we ask you to speak. We have sung our request to you, O Father, to let your holy word reach deep in us, to fathom the height and the depth and the breadth of your love for us and your majestic majesty and authority. We pray, O Lord, to give us the things we have asked for, O Lord, to hear you speak, to hear what you have spoken, and let it grow deep and rich within us. O Lord, fill us with your Spirit, fill us with your presence, Fill us individually and fill us corporately as a church body with all and everything of you, Lord. Fill us with everything of God the Father. Fill us with everything of God the Son. And fill us with everything of God the Spirit. In Jesus' holy name we ask it. Amen. The struggle for this sermon was not, what am I going to say? It's what am I not going to say? There is, oh, this was everything I anticipated it would be six months ago when I thought about this day. And we're going to start with verse 48 of the 8th chapter of the Gospel of John. Chapter 8, verse 48. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him, I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be like a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And so the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. You probably heard me reading this with emphasis and inflection 
that sounded like two people having a disagreement that was intense. This, this is disagreement and in, with intensity is probably even greater than what I read it as. The Jews, they're worked up into a frenzy at this point. By the time, look, this has been, go, this conversation has been going on since almost the beginning of chapter eight. You have to go all the way back to verse 12 for this conversation to begin. And they're like, you aren't who you say you are. Jesus is, yes, I am who I say I am. You are this person. No, I'm not this person. You are that person. You have a devil. No, you are the devils. You're, you're the devil's children. We are not the devil's children. We're Abraham's children. And then they come to verse 48. Are we not right saying you are a Samaritan and have a demon? These are more than just insults and character assassination that the Jews are hurling at Jesus. Oh, they are certainly that, insults and character assassination, but they are accusations as well as insults. The part about you are a Samaritan is to accuse Jesus of being like the theologically deficient Samaritans who worship on Mount Gerizim instead of Jerusalem and only believed in the Torah. They're saying you're not even a real Jew. You're a stinking Samaritan. Are you kidding me? Oh, but it gets better. It is like, if that's not enough, they even go further and get more incredulous. And oh, remember, while they're accusing him of being a Samaritan here, this is occurring in a very public setting. They are accusing Jesus in front of a, the crowd there in the temple of not even being a real Jew. This isn't like a private conversation happening off in one of the colonnades of the temple. No, this is right out in the court of Gentiles or the court of women at the very least in front of everybody. They're accusing him of being a Samaritan, not even being a real Jew. And when you add in this previous paragraph that I covered last week, they are attacking Jesus' lineage and accusing him of illegitimacy. They are accusing him of being an illegitimate son. And oh, by the way, this isn't just an insult or some way of trying to get the crowd. They're actually attacking his fatherhood. There are some early anti-Christian writings from the first century Jewish writings that say Jesus was conceived by Mary having sex with a Samaritan man. That's what they're saying right now in this temple, standing in front of Jesus. You are not even a real Jew because a Samaritan man is your father. Some unnamed Samaritan guy who slept with your mom is how you were conceived, punk. Oh, and to have a demon, that's not just an insult either. That's also an accusation. This is way more than just an, way more than just the insult. They're actually impugning Jesus's miraculous works with this accusation. They are saying, because in that day, magicians were often believed to have a demon that they were in control of, a type of servant who would do miraculous supernatural works for the magician at his beckoning. 
That's what they thought magicians did. That's not how they thought they worked. So they're actually telling the crowd, see, this Jesus is crazy. He only does these miracles because he has a demon working for him. He is the one from the devil. That's what they're accusing him of in this moment. Right there in front of God and everybody. Really? Are you kidding me? You Jewish aristocrats and Pharisees are really going to go there? Now you, do you start to grasp why Jesus had such animosity for these aristocrats and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the rulers? They just, they did everything that can possibly be done that's called blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, the unforgivable sin, to account to the devil the miraculous working of God. That's who we're dealing with here. Let's just put the cards out on the table. We're dealing with a bunch of boneheads. They're smart, but yet they're stupid. Right? You know, there's a difference between ignorance and stupid. Ignorance is not knowing any better, and stupid is knowing any better and doing it anyway. Oh, and I just can't help. I got to point out, the, I mean, I have to point out the irony here. One that I think John is implying for the readers who remember Jesus' interaction with the Samaritans in chapter 4 of the Gospel of John. It was the Samaritans who eagerly received Jesus as the Messiah, at least as they understood that person, and they received him and believed in him. But here, the true, the true descendants of Abraham will not receive and believe in Jesus. In fact, that's probably an element of they had heard about how the Samaritans received Jesus there in chapter four. And at this moment, they're sort of using that as a, another dig at Jesus. Look, you're Samaritans. They even like you. If you were a real Jew, the Samaritans wouldn't like you. Gosh, what boneheads. I'm sorry. I just... Oh. I got no tolerance for these fools. I don't know why Jesus just doesn't go... Like, just flick his finger. And they... And they... 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 Evaporate like... The ending of... The Marvel series. Right? They just... Why doesn't Jesus, why, why doesn't Jesus just do that? Just, uh, why put up with these fools? Sorry. You're messing with my Jesus. These fools are messing with my Jesus. That's why I get so irritated, so hostile in my voice. You're messing with my Jesus. I know. You don't need to defend him. He'll defend himself. Well, that doesn't stop me from wanting to. Mm. Okay, let's get to verse 51. Get away from these fools. Jesus says that if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews respond with, are you really serious? No one will taste death. Those are synonymous terms. In their worldview, in their culture, those terms mean the same thing. But what does Jesus mean by this phrase, 
that if anyone keeps my word or his word, if anyone keeps Jesus' word, that person will not see death. What does Jesus mean by that? Well, obviously we see the Jews, they interpret it very physically, which is ironic as they stand in the temple that on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, this is still the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, day number eight, and there's plenty of rabbinic writings as well as interpretations of the Old Testament that speak of the righteous ones are accepted into God's heaven and a person continues to live after death. So to take Jesus' words as referring to physical death is again an accusation against Jesus. Their own, their own belief system that they espouse from the Talmud and the rabbinic writings are if you're a righteous person, you will continue to live in the bosom of Abraham. Oh, but they conveniently forget that when Jesus says it. So what? Okay, they interpret it. They, they're, comp, they're, they're frequently misinterpreting what Jesus says. So what? Big deal. No surprise. Again, we come back to the central question. What does Jesus mean when he says that? Of, of course, we understand that what Jesus means is that the person who keeps his word will have eternal life. Just what he has said so many times up to this point in the Gospel of John. The very thing the Old Testament and rabbinic writings described as the hope for the righteous one. That's what Jesus means. We keep his word, we have eternal life. Now, of course, what does it mean to keep his word? Well, that's a great big thing that's a lot to talk about. And we'll have to really save that to really understand it. We'll have to save that and wait until John chapter 15 to really delve into it. But it, it's the, it, it comes back to abiding, something we've talked about, I talked about a couple of weeks ago. Abiding in Him, right? This, 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 this idea of keeping His Word is not works-based salvation. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about you just buckle down, you know, grind in there really hard and just persevere at obeying what I obeying my and following my rules. That's just the old covenant with a new name. No, that's not what Jesus means. Jesus is talking about the new covenant, abiding in his word and keeping it by all the things we talked about last week that are signs of those whom are children of God. Loving Jesus, loving our brothers and sisters. That's what Jesus means. And then verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Look, this is Jesus is talking here, right? Jesus is saying, Abraham saw my day and he was dancing in the streets. Well, what, um, okay, Jesus, when, when did, when did Abraham see your day? And, and what did he see? Right? What did he know and when did he know it? When did Abraham see your day? And, and what did Abraham see? Well, if Jesus meant an actual physical manifestation of Christ, the only place that fits with that is Genesis chapter 18, where the Lord and two angels visit Abraham 
before going down to the two angels go down to Sodom and Gomorrah. However, this event doesn't fit with Jesus' description of his day because that was Abraham's day for a new affirmation of the Abrahamic covenant and of Isaac coming to be born, the one who would be the son of promise. So the his day part doesn't fit with the events that occur in Genesis chapter 18, meaning Jesus' day. His day, Jesus' day, implies Jesus' Messiahship and Jesus' glory being made known to all the world. Everybody sees Jesus and everybody knows he is the King of Heaven. He is the, the Messiah, the Promised One. It implies an awareness of not only Jesus in that day in the temple, seeing Jesus in all his glory there in the temple, but also Jesus in the future day when he returns and becomes King of the new heaven and the new earth. It includes all that. And I think it is this understanding that Abraham had from heaven, seeing all that Jesus is and will be. And my justification for that is Moses and Elijah, there on the Mount of Transfiguration, they clearly had knowledge of what Jesus was doing and what he was going to do and why he was going to do it there on that mountaintop that day. But no matter what it is, no matter what Jesus means by this phrase that Abraham saw his day and was glad, the larger implication, the thing that really means something, the part that we've got to hang on to, is this claim to divinity that's implied by Jesus' words that Abraham saw his day. It's the implication that becomes explicit in verse 58. But before we get to verse 58, we've got to do verse 57. And so the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? Now, I know this seems like a benign statement. I mean, you kind of got to give them a little bit of benefit of the doubt here. They're responding to Jesus' claim to have seen Abraham, and he's this young guy who's only been alive for 30 years. No, never, ever give them the benefit of the doubt. Even this, even that phrase, you're not yet 50 years old, is an accusation and an insult. Even that. That's also a dig at Jesus. See, we know that Jesus was in his 30s when he was crucified. So this incident took place a year, maybe two years before the crucifixion. So Jesus is around 30, something like that, maybe 29. And here's the thing. In that day, Jewish offices, both civil and religious, had an age requirement. You had to be 50 years old to qualify for any important office or position in the Jewish culture. So here's this 30-year-old man, maybe even 29, asserting himself into levels of authority he is not old enough to have. In essence, in today's language, what they're, excuse me, today's language, what these aristocrats are saying to Jesus when they use that phrase, you're not yet 50 years old, 
is they're really saying this. You're not even old enough to be the city dog catcher. And here you are claiming to be the Messiah and equal to God. You ain't old enough, punk. And this age qualification subject here isn't just an issue right here in this moment in the confrontation with the Pharisees in the temple that morning or that afternoon. This age requirement is in the background of every confrontation he has with the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Every time we read of Jesus and the leaders in the Gospels, whether it's John or the other Gospels, they are thinking in the back of their minds, and this is laying there in the background, who does this punk think he is? He's not even old enough to do anything. And he's asserting himself like a prophet or the Messiah. I mean, is there any spot? I mean, where, where is the bottom with these guys? How low can they go? As impossible as it seems to me at this moment, reading this passage, I think it's possible for them to even go lower. I don't know how you dig through the bottom of the barrel like they are at, but somehow they're going to find a way to dig through the bottom of the barrel. And then verse 58. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So what does that mean? Right? I mean, you know, it's, it's, well, Jesus is claiming to be God. I mean, is he? Right? This is one of those questions that the Western world asks they read this verse and they go, well, you know, maybe he's saying he's God, but maybe he's not. I mean, is this really a claim to divinity? Okay, let's look, let's look at it. I mentioned at the beginning of the service, I believe this is the second most important verse in the Gospel of John. That it's only surpassed by the resurrection in chapter 20. And the reason I say that is because this moment is the one moment where Jesus is explicit about who he is, who he says he is. He's implying it many, many other times, but in this moment, he is explicit. This is who I am. So from the reaction of the Jews in verse 59, it clearly shows that they believe Jesus to be God. However, They've been misinterpreting almost everything Jesus says in this chapter, so maybe they're not a reliable source for what Jesus meant. But it's clear they thought and they believe Jesus is claiming to be God. Well, what about the grammar and the syntax of this sentence? Does, does that really mean that Jesus meant he is God? Well, in the previous I am statements, like I am river of living life, or you've I am the light, I am the got the bread of life. All these other I am statements, Jesus has a qualifying noun to go with the I am. I am the bread of life. I am light, the light of the world. Here, there is no qualifier. The I am just sits in the sentence by itself. It has no qualifier. Therefore, the phrase I am 
is referring to something that all of Jesus' hearers would understand. It means something that all of them would know because he doesn't have to put the qualifier with it. And so when we consider that Jesus is standing there in the Jewish temple on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, and when he says, I am, in that moment, in that place, on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, where they were spent eight days commemorating the entire wilderness wandering and God's presence with them, the I am through the pillar of fire and the cloud of light throughout the day and the night, all of that, they're remembering that and commemorating it, and he stands up on the last day of that feast and says, I am. Sorry, listen, I, I mean, th- there's really only, only one conclusion to draw from this. When you put all the pieces of the puzzle together, there is nothing left to conclude except Jesus is referring to the great I am from Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. And we're going to go there, brothers and sisters. Turn your Bibles backwards into Exodus chapter 3. I'm going to start reading in verse 13 of Exodus chapter 3, and I'll read through verse 18. And then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me in saying, I have observed you, what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the afflictions of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Pezzarites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us, Now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. And you notice that Lord our God, that Lord is the capital L and the lowercase capital O-R-D. That always, always, always refers back to I am, Yahweh. Every time you see that, that, word Lord spelled that way in your Bible, it is referring to the great I am of Exodus chapter 3. So here we are. I mean, when Jesus says I am, he's pointing at this and like you can't really get away from the reality that I am is the great I am, the one who created all things. And he promises that he will deliver them out of slavery. 
which is which is just what Jesus claimed in the second two paragraphs before this. If you are a slave to sin, but the Son will set you free. Oh, and it isn't just Exodus chapter 3 verse 14 that Jesus is pointing to. We also have Isaiah chapter 43 verses 10 and 12 to contend with. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord. Oh, and just by the way, the I, I am the Lord. That's like your mama using your middle name. I mean business this time. You better be listening. I, I am the Lord. And besides me, there is no savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declared the Lord, and I am God. Is there any confusion about what he's saying here? Is there any, is there any part of this that he leaves open for any other possibility that he is the only God and there is no one else that can save? No one, no one, can save except I am. And so we see from these two Old Testament passages along with the grammatical structure of Jesus' statement that there is no other conclusion that we can make. There is no other, look, there's no reasonable, rational way to make any other conclusion. To draw any other conclusion is to deny the clear evidence because you just don't want it to be true. Jesus is saying with his words, he explicitly is God. Notice something from Genesis chapter 3, verse 18, the end of verse 18, or the beginning of it rather. And God says to Moses, and they will listen to your voice. Referring to the people of Israel the Hebrews in Egypt. But look at this bunch of boneheads. Here is the great I am standing in front of them, telling them that he has been sent by the Father, and they reject him. They actually pick up stones so they can kill him. Just look at how they react. They decide to kill Jesus, which is just what he predicted in verse 37. If you go back and read that paragraph, you'll notice that he says, why are you trying to kill me? And they look around and like, who's trying to kill you? Nobody's trying to kill you. What are you talking about? Are you crazy? No. He was prophetically predicting what they were about to do when he did what he's going to do. He tells them that I am and so their response is to kill him. From here in verse 37, as well as in chapter 7, verse 19. Like I said, remember the, the elders in Moses' day received and believed his word. But yet this, these elders won't. But not these elders, they're just not going to do it. And so it's the, the scripture says that Jesus slips away from the crowd and leaves the temple. 
And here again, we have this miraculous ability of Jesus to just walk out and no one sees him leave while they're picking up rocks to kill him. They're ready to kill him. We're going to kill this. This blasphemer has got to die right here in the court of the Gentiles. Not right now. Pick up the rocks and kill him. They, so they're grabbing the rocks. And while they're trying to grab rocks, he just walks away and nobody sees him walk away. That, of course, is miraculous and not to be understated and overlooked. How does he do it? Some mythical mystics in the third and fourth century talk about Jesus just becoming invisible like he put on the cloak of invisibility. That just doesn't quite fit John's description of Jesus. He's not a magician. Jesus ain't no magician. He don't need no cloak of invisibility. The great I am has hid himself for 30 years. He can easily hide himself again for 30 seconds. Yet, no surprise, if you follow John and think about what he does, John often has double meanings in what he says. And John here is implying something more than Jesus just slipping out of the temple while they're trying to kill him. Here's a subtle reference in this moment, right? The intensity of their rejection of Jesus as God and the promised Messiah is so intense that he leaves the temple. Here's a subtle reference to the glory of God leaving the temple. An Ezekiel chapter 5 verse 11 moment. Therefore as I live, declares the Lord God, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable things and with all your abominations, therefore I will withdraw. Well, what detestable things and abominations have they done? They didn't nobody kill a pig and sacrifice it on the altar. They called the great I am a Samaritan. They said he was a demon, that he used demonic magic to do miracles. They said he was too young to do anything. And they picked up stones to kill him. I don't know how you can defile the sanctuary of God, the temple of God, any more than to insult and accuse God like they did right there in the temple. I mean, we're, remember, this is all happening in the temple. You say you love God and you're doing this to God? You deserve to have His glory withdrawn from the temple. You deserve to have the hollow, empty stone structure that you get when His glory leaves the building. I'm tempted to say an Elvis left the building moment, but that's even too weak. The glory of God, the Shekinah glory that they longed for was standing in front of them and it just left the building. And in a very spiritual way, while technically it's not true that Jesus doesn't come back to the temple in later chapters, but in a very spiritual way, the glory never comes back. Now, yes, Jesus comes back and wherever Jesus is, his glory is there present. But it's not the same from this moment forward. There's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a thing I can't explain about his glory that doesn't come back to this temple. Ever. 
and then 70 years later, no, 40 years later, it's destroyed. The building's put to the ground. The glory of God left 40 years earlier, and in his mercy, he left it standing for 40 more years before it was torn down. So I know what you're thinking at this point. Well, thank you very much for this wonderful, insightful lesson into Jewish culture and the things they're really saying. And yeah, it's really impressive that you were able to you know, prove completely without any shadow of a doubt that Jesus is claiming to be God. So what? So what? Well, here's the problem. What was occurring in that sanctuary that day is also occurring in this sanctuary this moment. That's what. See, when Jesus explicitly says, I am, to this group, it's a decision moment. I have revealed to you who I am, and now you got to make a choice. You got to make a decision. Today, right now, right here in this room, you got to make a decision. You're in the same boat these guys were. Jesus has said, this is who I am. I am the great I am. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say he is? That's the so what. You got to decide who he is. He is explicitly claimed to be God, to be the infinite one before time began, the one who was, is, and is to come. This is a decision moment. Yes, he is God, or no, he isn't God. Not just he's my friend. Not just he's my helper. And certainly not just he's my co-pilot. Like the bumper sticker says. Not just somebody who will love me when nobody else will. He is God or he isn't God. You got to choose. You got to make up your mind what you believe and why you believe it. What do you choose? Understand your eternal destiny lies in this choice. Jesus said, if you keep my word, you will have eternal life. His word is he is God. More practically, if Jesus is not God, he can't save us. He can't save us if he isn't God. He can't give us eternal life. He can't keep his promises if he ain't God. He ain't got the stuff to keep it and deliver on his promises if he is not God. That's why your eternal destiny hangs in this decision. Either he is or he ain't, and if he ain't, what you going to do about it? What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with yourself if he ain't God? This is a decision point. Who is he? And who do you believe he is? If you believe Jesus is God, Hallelujah. Rejoice in your salvation and the new life you have in Christ. Enjoy it. Embrace it. Embrace the fullness of his Godship and enjoy it. 
If you believe Jesus is God, start treating him like you believe he is God. Start respecting him and approaching him with the reverence and humility we all should have approaching and speaking to the holy, divine creator of the universe. And yes, I can give you the passages to show that Jesus is the holy, divine creator of the universe, starting with Colossians chapter 2. It isn't just right here. The entire New Testament reinforces over and over and over. He is who he says he is in this one verse. Do you believe and what do you believe? And it, look, I know I've been very forceful. This is literally life or death in these words. This moment is literally eternity with or without. In the Father's presence with all the glories and joy of heaven or all the horrors of hell. You know, I only preach hellfire and brimstone when I have to. And this is one of these have tos. You reject Jesus. You reject him as God. You reject him as your Savior. There's no middle ground here. This is a package deal. He is God and he is your Savior. He is not God. He is not your Savior. And when I talk about him being God and Savior, I'm not just talking about for salvation so that you can avoid hell. I'm talking about living like he is God, actually treating him like he is God. I know the passages describe Jesus as our friend, but this culture, this the, Christ, the church, the American church today is a way too comfortable with the friend Jesus and doesn't even seem to grasp the divine Jesus. And that's what I'm calling you to. I'm calling you to grasp the divine Jesus and see him in his divinity with all the pull to worship him as God that it brings. Who is he? Look, you have to make this choice. I can't do it for you. I know that many of you in here have already made the choice. Look, he's God. I believe in him. He's the Okay, start. Then the challenge for you, if you already believe, is you've got to start out treating him like he is God. We are standing, when we worship our Savior, we are standing in the presence of the holy, divine God, the creator of all heaven and earth. And he died for us. He died for us. He died for us so that we could know exactly what we sang this morning. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here, in the power of Christ, I'll stand. Here, in the power of the great I am, I stand, knowing nothing can pluck me from his hand. And so can you. O oh Lord, 
thank you for your word. Thank you for this word. How, how can you let us be in your presence? How can you even let us come near you? Yet you, you draw us to you. You want us to be near to you. You want us to have real intimate fellowship with you. But why? I mean, who you are and who we are, I don't understand it. But thank you. Thank you that you do. That you're drawing us to you and let us, let us, Lord, come to you in all the fullness that you have for us. Living in the promise that nothing can pluck us from your hand. In Jesus' holy name, amen.